From Central Sauce and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Sauce, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. Central Sauce and other publications on some freelance tip. And I'm here with my guys, Tyler Jones and Brandon Hill, who are also in their own rights writers, podcasters for Central Sauce, but also uh, writers for uh, an assortment of other publications. Um, What's up, guys? How are we doing? Not too bad. Let's not forget published poets. Tyler Jones, published poet. Yes, the the published poet, Tyler Jones. What's what up, up, Tyler? How you feeling? I'm good. Well, it's like I've actually some of our listeners will realize like my shit, my voice sounds like shit, but we we're surviving. We're here. 2023. Yeah. What's up? Yeah, yeah. 2023 raspy vibes. We're out here. Um, happy New Year to everyone who is listening. Uh, we're excited to get back into it and highlight some writing that that came to us at the end of 2022 for sure um, to sort of bring us into the new year that really stood out. Um, before we get into it, let's, let's do a little, uh, you know, what have you been listening to and what would you like to sort of put people's eyes or ear towards of your own work since we sort of started Mm. talking about our writing. So let's, let's do a two for one. How about one thing or, or, you know what, I want to add this in too, maybe something, something else that you've just because I, well, I'm kind of doing this selfishly. It's because <laughs> I, I want to say something too. Maybe if you, your favorite book of 2022 too, if you read any books, we'll do okay. a book, uh, something you've been listening to, and then uh, anything you want to promote of your own work. Let's start with uh, Brandon. Um, okay, something I've been listening to. I'm going to steal it right out the gate. Uh, Little Sims, new album. God Absolutely incredible. <laughs> and yeah. it's like crazy enough. We We joke all the time, like in our our group chats with everybody at like central sauce about the, the concept of like different ears, um, different people hearing different albums in different ways. But I think in the years that we have been doing this podcast and writing at central sauce, I think this is the first time, um, that an album has so completely and utterly resonated with every single person, um, in such a strong way. I don't remember any other time that anyone has ever kind of all collectively responded in that way, but yet still, interestingly have very different favorite songs different reasons for liking um different sections of the album um i mean i'll just go right out and say broken is just absolutely incredible the the specific bar on there where she references like being you know being 26 27 now and like real life really starting to hit heavy and she says something about like all my problems are caused by stress but like health conditions that are like worsened by stress, like basically alluding to the fact that like, like you're stressed about not having healthcare and not having healthcare then causes you to be more stressed, which causes you to be more, um, less healthy. And that really just like resonated with with me pretty strong. Um, something I've wrote recently, I'll just be quick on this actually, because it's sort of relevant to one of the pieces that we're discussing today. So I'll, um, bring it up a little bit later, but at least I recently wrote, about how online misogyny um, is targeting and radicalizing young kids on the internet. And actually, the more I've kind of seen with the Andrew Tate stuff over the last few weeks, the less that I want to specify like that it's radicalizing just young kids. Um, I think that that age range sort of expands even into like the mid-20s, possibly early 30s. 
um, for this like process of like online radicalization that begins with misogyny. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can check that out. Um, it's on my on my website and my link uh, in my bio on Twitter at Hoopla Hill. Gotta let let the people yep. know where to read it. For sure, Tyler. What do you got for me? What's some listening to? work you want to promote books you read hit us up all right so i'm gonna make i'm just gonna go through mine really quickly so i'm i'm i think the whole central sauce family can attest to no thank you little um by little sims is like one of the greatest albums that we heard uh last year it, <laughs> we're all just gonna talk about little sims we are it's, I'm, uh, I'm coming with it too let's just get it out the way yeah um for me angel silhouette like the whole album amazing is amazing but angel silhouette uh no mercy heart on fire just there's so many just great tracks from this from this album. It's it's it it really took my breath away and sometimes it makes me cry. It's great. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I also want to shout out. Remember that you will die by Polyphia is probably one of my favorite like math rock instrumental rock albums, and they're from Texas, so I have to like shout them out. Um, of course, everyone keep listening to, keep streaming, and check keep checking out for Devin Morris's um, his collection of eps right now there are the soul lounge like series i think he just dropped volume six they're all fantastic please keep checking him out i don't think we don't uh once again as some as someone all of us here we love our producers he's amazing one just listen to his music it's great and lastly but not least uh noah guy is a just a recent artist i just found listening to him like the past two three days just check out any of his music it's almost like pop but mixed with uh, a little bit of like soul a lot of like but also heavily sampled where it's like it's great it's 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 i find it really entertaining um when it comes to books i am going i'm reading this for my book club it's called we are not like them by christine pride and joe piazza it is a interesting book to me in the fact that it's you have once again, the white versus black perspective and it comes to um, of this tragic, once again, tale of like, and common tale of police brutality, but like how they're best friends and how the one is even related to the killer. It's, it's, it's interesting more than anything else. It's interesting. And I guess the only thing I can promote right now, anyway, is um, if you check out my poetry page on Instagram, Poet. You'll find all my published work recently. I started out the new year with a new poem in Soul in Space um, about growth. So um, it's the poem's called Echo Chamber. So check that out. And that is my very long spiel about all the content I've been consuming, besides catching up on all that, the movies for the Oscar race that's and shit good. like that. Well, that's sick, Tyler. Very, very sick stuff to share. I'm going to go in sort of reverse order of how you did it. I'll start with the stuff to promote. Uh, it would be really great if all of you who haven't read the last two sort of profiles that I had published in 2022, if you took a look at them, uh, all of the my portfolios in the link in my bio and both my social media platforms. So at Mickey Heller back on Instagram at Mickey Montebello on Twitter. Um, the first one, uh, is maybe the piece I'm the most proud of from 2022. I profiled a local restaurant group here in Baltimore where I'm from and live, uh, called heirloom food group who does a series. Yes, sir. (laughs) Who does a series of hip hop dinners, um, that uh, highlight the storytelling of hip hop and storytelling through food that I had published on OK Player. Really proud of that piece. Really cool one. And then I also did a profile of YSL's young KO, who I talked to firstly about all of the the different 
uh, areas he pulls from in his music, YSL specifically for the sort of melodic stuff, go-go music, which is a, uh, if, for those of you who don't know, go-go music um, is a localized uh, uh, subgenre of funk that um, is from DC and Young K.O. is from DC. And then also from that sort of uh, slutty boys, fat trell, do baby era of DC music. For those of you who know, he, he kind of got his rage from that. And he mixed it with this young producer named Warpster, uh, who he, I believe he says, if I can remember the direct quote, some type of futuristic sort of techno vibes that he gets from him. Uh, but I also talked to young KO about sort of the aftermath of, uh, the YSL, uh, Rico trial and how that's affected him. And then also the passing of his friend from YSL Lil Keed and how he's sort of operating and, and keeping his head down and keeping to work while all of that is going on around him. And I think it's, uh, yeah, it was it was a I think an important piece for me to put together, and I uh, I would love if you read it. Uh, next thing want to talk about is what am I saying? What am I missing? The book things. Book. book. Yes, thank you, <laughs> Brandon. Dilla time. Yeah, that I dance harness be <laughs> has been ruminating through my conscious. I just finished it. Um, it is literally the first book I've ever read where I was like, oh, you know what? Maybe I could actually write a book someday. Admittedly, as much as I am a writer, it is very hard in my adult life to, to actually sit down and read through an entire book <laughs> for this podcast and for my own sanity. I stick to articles, um, because I feel like I have so much going on in my brain half of the time, which may have to do with modern lack of attention span whatever it is, this one grabbed my attention for the whole time, stuck in my psyche. It is an incredibly brilliant, overarching, holistic view of a producer's life journey in music. Uh, and I believe everyone should check it out. And then to close it out and lead into my piece, the two things I have been listening to the most still are absolutely no thank you by little Sims. And particularly I wouldn't be myself if I did not mention the God himself inflow, who is the best living producer, uh, in my mind. And the work that he and Sims did together feels like an opus for both of them on a lot of levels. Uh, it's really to me, the thing that, that makes the album just elevated above everything else that I listened to last year is the one, two punch in their chemistry, the transit, the, the transitions are impeccable. The it's sort of like a mixture of R and B hip hop and gospel fused together at the peak of their genre levels at the same time, sort of going back and forth between each style production wise and Sim Sims. I think uh, the thing I want to say the most about her delivery is it is the most incisive and clean rapping that I feel like I have heard in mm. quite some time over the course of a project. Amen. Um, she makes everything sound so interesting. Absolutely. And on and on shouts to inflow that beat to angel has replaced the voice in my head that that voice of like self doubt or anything like I literally just hear the beat to angel now that's it exactly yeah. same here um, and just check and out all the salt stuff to too Jesus because of inflow yes also check out the five salt albums albums that they dropped uh, at the same time which are insane I like eleven the best Charlie our editor disagrees but that's okay. Um, <laughs> uh, so, and I want to say the other thing that I still literally this morning, I had a car ride back and forth from a work thing. And I listened to Sims on the way there. I listened to Kendrick on the way back. Um, those are the two ones that are still ruminating with me. The ones that I'm still listening to. We've had a lot of Kendrick pieces on the podcast and I am going to start 
with my own Kendrick piece. But before I get into it, let me just break down the three pieces we are going to be discussing. Again, I will start with a piece called Kendrick Lamar's New Chapter, Raw, Intimate, and Unconstrained. That is by Mitchell S. Jackson for New York Times Magazine. We will then lead into a a podcast favorite and regular, a piece by Andre G., but this time for Rolling Stone. Shout out, Andre, for making the move from Complex to Rolling Stone. That piece is called It's a New Year. Let's leave alpha male rap fandom behind, and we will close with an excellent piece that Brandon has brought in us from Up Rocks by Stephen Hyden, entitled 2022 was a weird and often bad year to be a concert audience member. And we will close with that one. I will start now with the first breakdown of a piece of the year 2023. uh, And it's a great one. Okay, so just to repeat myself one more time, the piece I am bringing to the podcast today, the one we are starting off with, is Kendrick Lamar's new chapter, Raw, Intimate, and Unconstrained. It is written by the Pulitzer winner, Mitchell S. Jackson for New York Times Magazine. Okay, here we go. Let's get into it. We've brought many pieces surrounding the Kendrick Lamar album from last year to the podcast. The reason, and I had to think about it for a minute to bring this one, it is is that it is inherently different from all of them. It's at a tie for my personal favorite piece of music journalism for 2022, along with this one other piece that actually, funny enough, exists within Citizen Magazine's print copy that on the cover has Kendrick. It's a different piece than that one. Uh, it's definitely because of the personal element which is tied into the piece, which I will get into in a bit. Firstly, I want to say what separates this piece is that it feels like a stage play in three acts. Let's call the acts the now of the artist, the condensed history of the artist and his right hand, and the now of the writer. Each act feels inherently separate, almost as if they could have existed in any order, but all needing each other to hold up the spine of the full piece. The writer, again, Pulitzer winner Mitchell S. Jackson, also does keep a theme of the idea of home, which links the sections and cements the order that he chose. The first part attempts to use his stage show as a lens to understand the Kendrick Lamar of now. I believe this to be the best way to strategize documenting the artist as someone who saw his stage show in Long Island and who gained even more context from it personally. Specifically, the first act also reveals the reasoning for the cover, including Kendrick's right hand, Dave Free. Let's call him Kendrick's artistic director, which is that he is now basically an even more elevated Robin to Kendrick's Batman, which he has just morphed into for his PG Lang chapter. The style of act one is classically journalistic and and a weaving narrative. The second act becomes more like it was birthed out of some sort of poetry hybrid style. If you've heard Kendrick's closer on his album, Damn, who hasn't, Duckworth, it's impossible not to see the correlation between this section linking Kendrick and Dave and Kendrick linking his own father and Top Dog during that song. Then the poetry slowly blends back into more of a narrative journalistic style weaving and storytelling quotes from Kendrick about the essential partnership he now has with Dave, almost closing the first two sections simultaneously and bleeding into Act 3. Act 3, to me, has a classic Aristotelian arc with its own story. Jackson begins with a conversation with Dave and Kendrick after their night one London performance, which he has gone and traveled to. Here we get exposition and rising action as they discuss all of their grapplings with ego in a dark restaurant, and Jackson shows the musical parallels to this. Little do we know what is bubbling under the surface of this exchange of ideas. We lead into the climax of the next section of Act 3, which is Jackson observing the second night of Kendrick's performance. 
Jackson latches onto the re- religious symbolism co-aligned with the grappling of the father-son relationship within Kendrick's performance of the standout track Father Time on stage, which swiftly whirls into Jackson's own mind and reveals the grief he has been going through this whole time while being in London around Kendrick and writing this piece. It was revealed to him that his father, his own father passed away on the flight over to London to orchestrate this piece. He recalls the emotional roller coaster he went through on the plane ride, which he has to suppress as soon as he met Kendrick and started along the journey, then concludes with a denouement reveling in the poignancy of hearing and watching Kendrick rap on stage, potentially the most potent line of Mr. Morale, everybody grieves different. And then we get our curtains. This piece simply does something I've never quite read anyone else do with a profile. To me, it feels as much an inspiration as a call to action to let our whole truths exist within our own journalism. So, I know that Mm. was a spiel. I wrote it out and I read it. You could probably Mm. tell that I was reading it. I wanted to write out my response to the piece because there was so much care gone that went into writing it. Um, And I wanted to to the best of my ability, break down the sort of journey that I personally went through uh, when I read it and now have reread it a few times. Um, I don't have any starting questions <laughs> to go with what that are, you know, more pointed, but I, I really would love a general response of, for the both of you, what was the sort of emotional or intellectual or whatever journey that this piece took you through? Start with Tyler. Um, yeah, I'm going to start this out by saying I cried during this piece. Um, the way it was, it was towards that third act um, when they interwove their own story in relation to like that because it was something I related to. Um, literally the second day I started my job working at a preschool, my Nana died and I had to go to work the next day because it was also my dream job. And also those kids relied on me. And then it happened again uh, this past year where a friend of mine uh, passed and I had to go to work the next day. And then my kids had to ask me questions. Why was I sad? And it it all it just made me think of like how it's once again the last line and the and the line from the album, we all grieve different. And how and I wanna just, just Mitch Mitchell S. Jackson, I don't think I've ever read any um anything by them before, but God bless I, they made me a fan. They made me a fan. Um I think the way the the structure was, we talk about structure a lot and how uh, as writers we put our pieces together. To have this in as Mickey would like describe three acts, but I would even go further to like almost like saying it was forced. You almost had pauses in between because like you could almost like insert those little anecdotes, almost like uh, ad libs. You would say uh, writer ad libs because three paragraphs in when we start the article. And before, uh, like, right before we get to that next chunk of writing, I love this quote. Mitchell writes, "All to say, homie looks every bit the sublime superstar he is. Like, like what, like what, like what, like it's it's some it's it's in that intentional thinking, writing, and perspective, but also 
having the voice to be like, I'm going to insert this here. Just if like if people didn't know like already what if I need to like break it down again to make sure people understand what I'm saying. Here, here, here. Let me be as plain as possible it's in two in Tupac words. Homie's a superstar. That's all you need to know. And throughout and throughout the rest of the piece, you just see his. He's so intentional. They're so intentional in what they do and how they and how they write. Bring in quote like it would bring in quotes and factors of writing where I'm like, is this a history lesson right now? And then goes into like, oh no, this is it's all related, it's all connected. He writes as if Kendrick raps, which is why I think he was the perfect person like to do this profile. And but I also have to agree with Mickey. It was probably one of the favorite things I read of like from pieces of writing last year, because it's it's not going to be very often where I cry during a journalistic piece. And I'll usually, that's my uh, criteria for my albums of the year. Did it make me cry? So <laughs> I, I almost have to go by the same criteria if I'm going to be talking about pieces of writing that I liked. Yeah, man. I, I think, um, thanks firstly, Tyler, I think for sharing your, your own sort of life parallels and own experiences with grief uh, and how, how the, the, you know, the expressions of or the reactions to to grief that Mitchell Jackson kind of displays in this really sort of hit home for what you've been going through. I'd say uh, the last couple of years are inherently riddled with grief for many of us. Um, so it felt, you know, we're still coming out of something that is a time period of the most, you know, societal and worldwide levels of grief ruminating that we've had, which is why that sort of opening statement from Kendrick, I think really, you know, even passed out of the initial album cycle is still sort of kind of floating in people's consciousness. And I think, uh, Jackson was really intentional throughout the piece, um, with how he sort of strong, he, he, he put that through line going through all of it. There's a lot of foreshadowing of it. He mentions United in grief, um, at the beginning of the piece, but you don't realize it's true meeting until he gets to it at the end. And I think that's, that's a real craftsman at work. Mm-hmm. Brandon, what did you take away from the piece? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, going into this piece, one of the things that I'm obviously the most interested in is just the concept of like, how do you profile someone like Kendrick Lamar, right? He's been written about for years and years as one of the largest artists in hip hop, one of the largest artists in music. And not only like, is it just the size of the artist, but he's also, you know, very elusive, um, doesn't give a lot of interviews, doesn't give a lot of, of, of quotes himself. Um, so taking as a journalist, taking on such a once in a lifetime opportunity, but also massive, massive challenge. It's interesting to see kind of how that's approached. And actually reading this profile, there's two other profiles that it called to mind. Um, first of all is the profile, I forget the name of the author, but it's called um, Frank Sinatra Has a Cold. Um, it's one of the greatest profiles I think that's ever been written in music journalism, period. We're hopefully going to talk about it on the pod at some point. But the reason that that particular profile stands out is the way that the journalist approached similarly an artist that's larger than life and had been for quite a while. Um, and how you approach that from or the way that both of these journalists kind of did that was by not really including a whole lot of the artist in a one-on-one sense. You get much more of this sort of like 
retelling of the artist through through their environment, through observations that you make about other people around that artist, um, through observations you make about ways that they set up their art and they set up their performance. And then even uh, one of my favorite bits about this was how he watched uh, Kendrick's performance with Dave Free, and he wasn't just observing the the touches of art to Kendrick's performance, but observing how Dave Free observed the performance, knowing so much about, you know, it's like sitting there and you're like, okay, I can take this in and try to interpret it in the way that I best can, but how interesting is it to look at this person who has been so intimately involved in all these aspects of presentation and who understands Kendrick's art on a personal level that I can only try to do? So what can I gain from observing that person, right? And then the second profile that this reminds me of um, was actually Yo Phillips' profile on Mac Hami. And that one almost because it's it was done in a different way, but in the similar sense of like, how do I talk about, how do I describe this very elusive artist? Um, how do I capitalize on like the opportunity to even do this that a lot of people don't get? Um, and where, you know, Yo took an approach where Mac is a bit newer to the scene. He takes an approach where he's like, how do we understand this elusive artist? How can I give the reader an experience that, they are not likely to have through any other avenues, and I can bridge that gap as a writer, right? But here, in this Kendrick profile, he, he kind of takes a step back from that. He doesn't try too hard to, like, over-explain Kendrick. He doesn't try too hard to, like, pull too much from the metaphors and, and pull too much from the performance to, like, make reaching observations about his character or anything like that. He talks about the art and the performance as it means to the art and to the performance. Um, some examples of that are, you know, right at the beginning where we, we it, it's, he explains Kendrick by adding a lot of context to the things that we already know. So like, for example, we know that spirituality is always very close to Kendrick, right? And so when we see Kendrick doing ventriloquism uh, with the dummy, the journalist does the added context of giving us this little background on the spiritual history of ventriloquism. You know, it's not, he doesn't come right out and say, like, I talked to Kendrick and I was like, yo, Kendrick, did you know that Christians used to accuse ventriloquists of witchcraft and execute them? You know, you don't have to know that there's that conversation there, but by knowing how intentional Kendrick is, you can sort of like draw some of those connections out of context in a way that a reader wouldn't just assume, right? And then another example of that was obviously, though I already mentioned it, but the list of um, observing Dave three through Dave free throughout the concert, and then also adding context to like what does it mean for Kendrick to leave TDE with Dave free, and one of the the bits of context he adds to that is that Dave actually kind of left first, and how that kind of like foreshadows the way that Kendrick is looking at you know, being an active member of TDE throughout most of his life versus also like working with Dave Free throughout most of his life and sort of the the dichotomy of those two things and what it means to him to kind of like split between those. Yeah, that's a lot of great observations. I really like that you brought up the ventriloquism because I think that was another very craftsman-like uh, way to, as you guys know, I'm the big through line guy to bring it back to the through line of grief that sort of goes through the piece and how ventriloquism is something about bringing voices back from the dead. I thought that was really mm. crafty. Uh, and then, so just to, 
that's the one through line again. And going back to what me and Tyler were both talking about is grief. But I think the other through line, which I sort of expressed in my intro, but just want to drive home as we kind of move out of this piece, which is the, the theatrical element of the whole piece, which is parallel to Kendrick's theatrical element of his presentation. And uh, my favorite pull quote of the whole thing is when he's talking to Kendrick about what his ideas for the show were going to be. And he says he, the first thing he says, which is sort of the jump out thing, the, the pull thing that you could use as like a title or a pull quote for other people who are covering this piece happening is that he wanted to be like a hood Beethoven thing. But the much more interesting thing is he, to me at least was that it was a hip hop theater show without the corny shit, which to me is exactly how the piece is written in three acts, which is like displaying hit from his observation. Mitchell Jackson a hip-hop theater show in three acts without any of the corny shit which I think is super displayed with how he does the sort of poetic element that reminded me of uh, Duckworth in the second act Um, so I thought that was a really cool pull quote and it also sort of represents uh, to me what Kendrick is doing with the album right like we cry together I've even seen some people randomly say that it like reminded them of Hamilton a little bit but to me <laughs> it's very much like the hip-hop theater show without the corny shit it's is in like being the really raw emotional um, no holds bar not in the cookie cutter ideology of what musical theater is and really sort of understanding and obviously I, I don't know if anyone knows this i like went to college for musical theater and i kind of shoo yep. away from that i i don't really love a lot of the the presentations of it and i think it has to do a lot with um a frustration with understanding the 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 sort of effect that a theatrical performance can have on an audience but it being in this weird cookie cutter box that like the writers have never really been able to break out of and Kendrick having a kind of keen understanding of that and almost maybe Mitchell Jackson having an understanding of that and being like I understand the value of this but how can we make it not the corny shit really struck home for me and was another cool through line in the piece um, anything else y'all would yeah. like to add before we move into Andre's piece? Tyler, I knew, I think you're about to say something. Go ahead. Yeah. It's like, I just wanted to say like, it's, it's, he mastered something. I want to just once again, go to that, that poetic section that the last thing I want to say about it is like, he postured prose about processing pain perfectly and poetically. It was masterful. And to almost, as, as Mickey, as you were saying just before going to school for musical theater, it almost sounded like notes that you like, you're almost for your screenwriting class or a playwriting class. That was like, he was hitting the beats for like, when we were talking about Keem's life, his, his life as well. And I want to say the last quote you'll hear from me, uh, from him about this is like his processing of pain and why he didn't go back home. And it reads, why didn't I? Because I was loath to disappoint the people who were connecting to me. Because you turning would have made me feel like a failure. And I would never know which failure will wreck me. Because no matter what distance I travel from childhood, I still feel, still feel one foot in the poorhouse. Because ne- my now deceased father and others instilled in me that the lessons to which Kendrick had testified. About the necessity of impenetrable toughness. About keeping all my emotions to myself. About weeping only in private. Because despite the resources I've invested in to resist my own nurturing, I'm still liable to see a weakness as an anthema, to mistake aspects of hum, um, humanness for the qualities of being a punk, and that was and it just and that's what hit me and made me pour out my own self, and that's what I mean by he postured 
prose to process pain poetically. And I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, my last note actually builds on that too, which is just a note on sort of like tone and structure, uh, which is that you don't get this like, I mean, you can tell that when writing something like this in the midst of clearly what was such a powerful personal experience and the writer, you know, as a writer, you can't help but kind of parallel your experience to like what you're writing about, what you're thinking about, you know, those things kind of like stick in your mind. Um, And when writing this, you then have the choice of like, do I include that in the piece? Like, I'm thinking about it all the time as I'm thinking about how to write this and, and what I'm thinking about, you know, this profile. But is my processing of that something that I need to give to the reader? Or is that personal to like my experience? You know, does it matter to the story? Does it matter to the piece? And you kind of like build to it without really like hitting the reader with it right out the gate. So you even even in that structure, you kind of see some of the battle of like, okay, I can tell the story without this, but is is it is it the way to close the piece? Is it you know the personal context matter to the story as the way I've built it up? And I, and it does you know, and it clearly does execute well, and that's really like a testament to the way that you know good writers are also good thinkers, like you know it, or that those two things, you can't really have one without the other because so much of the work behind the writing is really just kind of like an internal battle for writers between what, you know, what they're processing and what they're learning as they're writing something. Yeah. Yeah. I think kind of what hit, hits home for me, and I guess it's the last sort of note I had written down to is the, the real intentionality and not using his, his own story to, to, sort of cement the piece as a whole um and the 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 real thought that that went behind uh making sure that was the case okay so let's move on to a another uh, impeccably thoughtful writer tyler why don't you introduce your piece Thank you, Mickey. Um, my piece by Andre G. It's a new year. Let's leave alpha male rap fandom behind. And this was, I think this came out, like I think a few days after the wake of the verdict of the Tory Lanez trial, uh, which all happened during Christmas season. Hooray, everybody. Uh, there's your gift for like ending the year. I think he really was able to like the the best way to describe this piece is with his opening two sentences. Hip hop has something for everyone. That's the beauty of the genre. But in some instances, it reflects ugly realities. Using this piece um, as almost as using the three central figures of Future, Drake and Tory Lanez, but not mentioned as you uh, as much as you would think it would, because like that story is essentially closed for the time being. He goes into like how their music is made for that misogynistic alpha male and mar- and more so not necessarily made, but marketed to and glorified by the misogynist, by the rap fan, male or female, but usually in this case, male, that lift these heroes up to either degrade women online or in real life. Brandon, as you, I'm sure you can attest as the recent, uh, recent piece that you've written, it's been a, it's people believe that we are in a gender war. 
which honestly, if you go outside, we're not. Go out, get, touch some grass, please, I beg of you. <laughs> and, Andre, and Andre G reflects that in saying that this music that we, that as a, we as a whole, as like a culture that we decide to lift up sometimes, can be harmful. Because it's, we're seeing real life repercussions from it. People just attacking women, verbally and physically. And how, as and and while these artists, we want them to grow, and while they actually have quite diverse catalogs, they're the these album, these last two albums, her loss, and I've never liked you from uh, from Drake and Future respectively, and Twenty One Seven, excuse me, as well. There's plenty of content on there that's not just like bashing women, but the ones that are that people gravitate to and they use for the quotes, and that they and they the toxic king persona that they love to dive into those are the songs that get the most attention and that should not be the case we should as a, as a culture he's saying that instead of like lifting toting these songs up making them making them marketable we also have to take responsibility as an audience and make sure that's not the only thing that we herald that we lift up and even sometimes give give way and pay attention to while it needs to be addressed at the same time, it's not the stuff that we need to put on the pedestal and all and always drive numbers up. And Andre G, once again, the master that he is, right, guys, a, a, a favorite of ours over here. Uh, he puts he meticulously puts that together, just simply saying, "No, we shouldn't." And with this quote, he says, "Violent masculinity is a worldwide scourge." Boys who are radical, radicalized to hate women or treat them like mere objects of the male ego get their cues from somewhere, and popular culture gives them too much fodder. And that's our and 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 we should put the responsibility on the artist for making that music, and the responsibility of ourselves to make sure we call it out and make sure it's not something that's bred even further. And also, I want to shout out our friend Elliot, uh, um, our fellow writer, fellow writer as well, because I'm I'm thinking he did a video essay on this as well. But um, Brandon, I'll start out with you um, as someone who, once again, has also written a piece about this as well. Wh- where did you What did you get from this piece? What 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 what, what were your big takeaways? Yeah, the misogyny on the internet thing is really, really bad. <laughs> That's like the understatement of, of the year. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's, I mean, there's genuinely a way that media is basically profiting off of selling misogynistic ideas that originate in spaces that encourage terrorism. That sounds dramatic. That sounds like it's a reach, but it's absolutely not. Like a lot of these, these ideas, they originate on like incel spaces. Um, a lot of these jokes and there's, there's something to the way that like women suffering violence makes like a, a, accessible like joke or meme culture or something like that. But for, for this piece with Andre, I think what really got my attention is the way that he, he frames this as like Drake and future, literally the last line of the, of the piece is Drake and future underselling their considerable talent to pander to misogynists, right? The it's, it's the idea of underselling the talent to do something that is easy, destructive and profitable, right? It's not like just like, oh, the music happens to be picked up by people who are in a bad space, so we should criticize the music. It's that, the mu- that, it's that they actively notice that this is who the records are selling to, and so they then shape 
the content further to sell to that audience is really the problem here. It's, it's, it's really the way that like misogyny and attacking women has become so profitable in media. And again, those ideas originating in spaces that directly encourage terrorism against women and have, you know, reacted with terrorism against women. And it's also, it provides like a really, you know, it's um, extremely topical that Andrew Tate has mentioned in here. Um, And I wonder if this piece, I think, dropped after Andrew Tate was arrested, but I don't know like where in the editing process, whether or not that like that was a major um, thing that Andre had on his mind writing this piece. But one of the things like I want to add to, you know, is it's really easy to take the argument that like, oh, music is entertainment. Music is for fun. We don't seriously think this. We don't seriously mean this. We just listen to this and then we kind of laugh about how edgy or absurd the misogyny is, right? But then when you have people like, um, you know, it goes beyond that to, to future literally bringing a Manosphere influencer on to promote the album, right? That's intentional. That's, that's either one, like further selling my album to this man's audience because I know that's the audience I'm targeting, or two, um, further selling this ideology to the people who already listen to my music, right? You have that whole issue of, oh, like, I'm a fan of Future. Like, let me check out what's promoting his album. And then, like, haha, like, this Kevin Samuels dude is funny. Like, look at him. Like, this plays off of Future's music. And now, like, let me go check out this Kevin Samuels dude. And now your YouTube, al- YouTube algorithm is absolutely fucked. Um, I can say from personal experience with me having done a bunch of research for this um, internet misogyny piece that I recently wrote that like my algorithms are messed up. I, I, my whole recommended videos now are filled with, you know, so-and-so goes savage on liberal college students or so-and-so debunks feminism. You know, like that's my algorithms are all screwed up because of this. And so it goes beyond. Oh no, Ben Shapiro. Yeah. I mean, and that, that's an extremely easy and accessible entry point. And a lot of it has to do with these algorithms, with the way that these Venn diagrams sort of overlap, right? Like the the overlap of, you know, Ben Shapiro, who says that, you know, liberalism is destroying the nuclear family and leading to the breakdown of society. That Venn diagram and the overlap with people who think that we should return to an era where women no longer have bodily autonomy and have to trade reproduction for access to economic success, that Venn diagram is enough of a complete circle that the algorithm will drive you from one to the other in an extremely quick and short sitting. And so if we continue to push this like really hyper-misogynistic music and pretend like it's just entertainment or pretend like it's just for fun, we're driving people further and further into this like radicalizing algorithm. Um, and it's done intentionally is really the, the crux of what I'm getting out of this Andre piece, you know, with the way that future specifically brings on manosphere influencers with the way that Andrew Tate, uh, uses Drake's music in the background of his videos. It's almost like a, a pop culture cosign for the ideologies that, that the people who are expressing violently, um, are able to use as a cosign for those violent ideologies, even at the same time playing off the music as entertainment or as a joke. You know, it just contributes to that overall group think around this horrible, like, internet misogyny that um, is also not new, has been around for a while, but is getting magnified, mm-hmm. definitely. Mickey? Yeah. Uh, I 
want to talk about my frustration with the vitriol and trolling that I have seen and observed and know that Andre has gotten in response to this piece. And my frustration with it lies in the fact that he is so intentional and careful about the two audiences that he is speaking to in the piece and not at all in any point of the piece talking down to them, but talking directly to them Mm. to try to get them to understand where he is coming from (laughs) it. So my reaction to all of the vitriol is, Oh, there's no shot that you read the piece. You only read, (laughs) (laughs) you only read the headline. Um, and I think, and I, I, I'm glad you brought up that sort of Venn diagram section, Brandon. And I just want to read the quote from it really quickly because I think this is a perfect example of how carefully Andre is placing his message within the piece and having trying to make it as conversational as possible. While Future and Drake are rich enough to conceivably treat women the way they rap and still attract more, many of their misogynistic fans who clamor for toxicity aren't and get their fill through them. The fandom of misogyny makes it hard to ponder the Venn diagram between men who enjoy toxic music and those sustaining a toxic status quo in real life. He's really being very pointed and breaking down like, some version of, hey, listen, I, I understand there's like a fantasy element to this in, in going into it, but there's also a level of let's be honest about who you really are and you taking some justice with these ideas and putting them into your real life. It makes no sense and it's it's poor behavior and bad for society for you to do this. Let me have a conversation with you about it and really break down what this means for you. And then for... The other side of the audience, which is artists like Future and Drake, he goes in many other ways. Let me read this quote. I can acknowledge Drake's talent, but it's also hard for me to hear women's stories about how patriarchy assails them, empathize with women like Megan Thee Stallion, and then cheer on artists who feel intent on tearing them down for cheap headlines, which is so much of a, hey, Drake, listen, like I enjoy the music. I'm not a hater. I want to take in what you're saying and let you even have the ability to like have even semi grappling moments of a little bit of, you know, bit, you know, talking through your own mind processing of things. But when you take it over this line of a certain level, you make it absolutely impossible for me to enjoy any of the other work that you've put into your craft. Um, And I think, just to go back to my first point, it's so insane to have a reaction of F you, I'm not listening to this or reading this. You really think you can come out here and cancel Drake in future? What's wrong with you? Kind of reaction to this for someone who cares so much about the specificity of the mm. communication of the message. And he um, mentions, you know, several times that them doing this is underselling their talent. He mentions that, you know, multiple times. He, the, the whole piece is laced with the idea that, like, we can be better and it's not even that hard to be better. Like, yeah. And that the fans even want them to grow. It's yeah. like, it, as they, it, he doesn't, once again, the, the, the perspective of, like, the fan loves the artist. Andre G has, like, written about these people before. He doesn't hate them yeah. it, by any by, by any means or stretch of the definition. It's 
he's trying to help them progress. He literally says... In the, in the kindest way possible. Absolutely. He literally says some suggested the stallion line wasn't actually about Megan, but even if this that wasn't Drake's intent, he must have known it was too close for comfort. That's like the mm. epitome of the, come on, bro. Yeah. And also... <laughs> Let's be real here. And also... There's more. It's not like Jake Drake just recorded that line and put it out. There's so many people who had the chance to hear that and be like, maybe this is not it, right? But you can tell it it plays into, you know, Tyler mentioned earlier, like uh, this idea of a gender war. Um, And if you look at like incel culture, manosphere, red pill, this whole nasty shit that please, for the love of God, don't Google. Um, Just read good, (laughs) just read good writing from good journalists. Don't give them any more SEO. Um, but it plays into this idea that men have been attacked by the Me Too movement. Um, and Mickey, we kind of had this conversation in the group chat a little bit the other day about how, um, you know, the same men who want to believe that Megan would, the Stallion would make up being shot in order to get back at an ex-boyfriend are the same men who believe that women make up rape and sexual assault allegations, right? So this this energy, it plays off of each other, Um And somehow, you know, there's a really deep feature in it somewhere, but somehow it has to do with the way that these extremely online spaces um, have made it profitable for media to spread their ideas, right? You know, I I just saw even earlier today. It's it's gross and disgusting. It's gross and disgusting. Let's be be frank about it. And it's It's, easy. To see the negligence from like media overall in everything they've taken over the past year especially has been disgusting yeah and it's easy to witness and and because it 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 it, stuff like this places these men like drake and future and tory lanes it places these men um in a position where they're viewed as like winners in the gender war right and inspiring to men right because they're pushing back against um Feminism. They're pushing back against Me Too. They're pushing back against uh, men being held accountable. You know, they're pushing back against the idea that like women are the ones you know mostly wronged and abused in relationships. There's there's a direct link between this and the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard stuff. I mean, there's so much more to go into on like the online misogyny side of things here. But I mean, you just got to give it to Andre. We've kind of taken it a few other places, but you got to give it to Andre for how narrowly this piece is actually written and how like direct and to the point it is without being distracted by a whole lot of, you know, finger pointing or a whole lot of like, you know, this or that, like he, we've taken it some other places, but Andre's piece is very direct and to the point when it comes to this, this issue. Which is, goes back to my first point is it, he really does an incredible job of uh, dissecting the very narrow, like you said, cycle of of this type of thing and and being very pointed and talking directly to the very specific two audiences that he's talking to to hopefully make some change happen so let me make this a final resounding call read the fucking piece before you say shit (laughs) (laughs) damn right it's like but once again then we learned last year that apparently people don't read and it's kind of it's kind of sad guys as people aren't doing their their required reading so, uh, luckily, I'm pretty sure all of our audience here reads, but just in case, give your friend a book. That might be the best gift you can give them. <laughs> yeah, okay. shout, shouts reading. Shouts reading.
Okay, uh, on to the next one. Brandon, why don't you introduce your piece and our final piece of the pod today? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so my piece is in Up Rocks. Um, it is titled 2022 was a weird and often bad year to be a concert audience member by Stephen Hyden. So what really kind of initially drew my idea to this piece was the headline. Um, and it was sort of based on a pitch that I had kind of been kicking around, which is basically just the general concept of like, why does live music absolutely seem like it just sucks right now? Like, why is it overpriced? Why, like, why are my favorite artists canceling tours? Um, you know, he mentions Little Sims. We all clearly just massively big upped um, and who has massive fan bases, but it not being profitable for them to tour. And so I wanted to look at like, this is one of those things everyone's talking about, but has had a lot of trouble, you know, placing a singular finger on. Um, and, but everybody's just kind of aware of. So I wanted to see how it was approached in this piece. And the interesting thing about it is that it's pr- approached by, um, by Haydn in a very like economic way, but also through a perspective that sort of turns the gaze back on the audience. Um, and when we deal with, you know, we talk about all the time under like, why is something so expensive, right? Well, in this system, it's because that's what people are willing to pay for it or that's what a corporation is able to force people to pay for it, right? And it's kind of a combination of those two things. So one prong of that, as discussed in this piece, is the um, monopolization of the live music industry, which is where a lot of this conversation gets sucked into. Um, It's the merger of Ticketmaster and Live Nation. You know, it's the choking out of, I think they specifically refer to it in this article as like the middle class artist, um, which is so much of what we've seen in the pandemic through other economic avenues, right? And it's this idea that if people collectively lose a bunch of money, if people collectively um, are suffering in an economy, then the people who are going to benefit from that are the people who have the money to buy up assets that are being sold off at really low prices in order to further monopolize. You know, we had the same problem happened a lot with rent, right? A lot of small time landlords um, suffering under the pandemic have to you know, sell off their properties in order to continue to pay mortgages. And the people buying them are the ones who have massive, massive portfolios and capital. So it it, it causes this, this effect of like further concentrating all of the resources, all of the assets, all of the economic power um, further and further into less hands every time that we have one of these like really bad economic downturns. It just further happens. And then the more money and power is up there, the more that money and power uses its money and power to grab more of the money and power, you know, classic problem. Um, it's explained very well when it comes to live music in this piece. But then what it also looks at is, you know, the audience and how the audience plays into this factor. And you have, you know, all the hype about coming out of out of the I mean, I, I'm not I'm saying out of the pandemic, but you know what I mean, coming out of the, the lockdown phase of the pandemic into a year where we're finally going to have open up concerts again. Um, and he kind of alludes to how like it wasn't all as rosy as, as what you pictured in your head, like, Oh, we're back to live music finally. But no, there's still so much scrutiny on whether or not it's going to be a super spreader event. You know, a lot of, a lot of the like discourse around whether or not it's still appropriate to do that weighed against like the idea of like, I want to support my artists. I know they've been suffering for two years and we can no longer continue in this way. Um, the shutdown of, of, of other avenues for those artists to access that income kind of forces them into a position where they have to do this, you know, from a less profitable standpoint. Uh, we've covered previous pieces 
Um, a couple weeks ago, we covered one by an artist himself who broke down what it costs to tour um, and how he took a loss for the tour, but still the need to do that in order to generate fan bases. Um, and so I'm gonna end, I'm gonna read this quote here from the piece that I think is a pretty good summary of of what makes this one different by by setting it you know at the perspective of us as the consumer. And it's we aren't just passive consumers. We are collaborators involved in the creation of once-in-a-lifetime moments, the very thing people pay for when they purchase a concert ticket. We matter even if the industry we pour our dollars into doesn't always act like it. So I guess uh, to open with a question, um, just in general, you know, what was some of your guys' personal experiences yourself with seeing concerts last year? Um, I know like I myself went to a lot of shows, but I'd say like the average ticket price for shows I went to ranged in like the 30 to $50 range. Um, the piece here mentions how for really, really large artists, the profitability of of shows is higher than ever, even while the middle class of artists is being absolutely choked out. Um, and the only like really major, like upper level ticket price that I paid last year was for uh, Gorilla's show. And that was 115 bucks for like nosebleed seats. Uh, Mickey and like Mickey, I know you went and saw Kendrick. So yeah, you can talk about that yeah. experience too, but yeah. Uh, my experience with concerts, I, uh, <laughs> Let me to actually let me talk about the what I liked about the piece and then bleed into that because I think they correlate. Uh, what I first and foremost liked about this piece is it felt like a group huddle. Like it, it really <laughs> felt like this sort of like, hey guys, let's get together and let's talk. About let's this. figure this shit out. And I, yeah. it felt, and I, you know, I talked about this, with, and I felt like this at the last piece. Is it, someone who just really knows their audience. It really felt like a yeah, let's sort of like get this out all out on the table so we can think about what we can do moving forward. Um, and I think the thing obvious that that really like stuck out to me the most was just the real hesitancy to be around people who are super locked into being online at a live concert situation. I think that was like the one that really was like, oof, that's how I feel. And I think was a lot of the hesitancy for me, like proactively going to a lot of concerts that I hadn't really voiced out loud, but I went to the one big concert I went to was Kendrick. And most of the other ones were stuff that was like sort of put together by people that I knew or friends that I was maneuvering towards. It felt like a safer environment for me to, to go to rather than going to a lot of shows sort of like on a whim. Um, and then Kendrick is, you know, if not my favorite artist, one of them ever. So I, I really felt like I, I owed it to myself to go to that. And luckily that, that show went really well. It was excellent. And there wasn't any weirdness, but I also like Brandon with the gorillas one sat in the nosebleeds, but I think it, this this piece really gave voice to my subconscious of of that feeling of like man do i not want to be around people who are going to see a show for the sake of putting <laughs> their experience of going to see the show online like man do i not want to do that and and you know and it goes into the the stuff that was sort of circulating <laughs> that we all found out about online funny enough about how people were reacting to certain things it obviously mentioned the Travis Scott situation and like, there's no way for that to not have an effect on your psyche. Um, and it was, you know, it was, it was really intentional, not just that it felt like a group huddle, but it was really intentional about expressing, listen, we need to have this 
conversation we all do because there's sort of a void that we're right. all living through of this 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 feeling and we need to talk about where this is coming from not from a technical aspect aspect but from a real like individual which you know bleeds into the communal aspect of how we're all feeling about how this is working yeah but when it came to me when i read this piece it was like it's been a it's kind of with the andre piece but more so than this one um than anything else it's it was like as brandon was saying here's the mirror look let's look at ourselves for a second let's 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 see what we're really doing here let's let's be for real and, and when I say we, of course, for some people that might be like, oh, did I do this at that show last year? Or did I, or even looking at me, did I do it at the show last year? But it's like, at, guys, we have to remember our artists are people. We have to remember our artists. Like, that's a, that's something I wanted to point out as well as Mickey was getting into um, as a, a little bit. That the, the Steve Lacey thing was something that they mentioned. The Mitski concert was something they mentioned. And for me, I went to eight concerts last year. Eight, it's between eight and ten. I can't remember. I can't remember the exact number right now, but I saw some of that behavior. Mm-hmm. People just not like they were tossing things on stage. People having to stop and be like, "Ayo, chill." Yeah, I saw uh, like I saw Max Ch- Cream, and it blows my mind that an artist more than once shouldn't even have to say it once, but that an artist more than once has to be like, "Yo, stop, stop touching me, stop grabbing me, like stop, stop grabbing at my feet and shit," like. That you have to stop a show and say that multiple times absolutely just like blows my mind. It's we we forget that once again. It's we it's because as Mickey was saying as well with the online space with this screen because we have access to these people's music sometimes their lives through social media and we forget that they're people. Like God forbid, God forbid that um, if Mickey tours one day right and like. And he's out here, and I hear about him like getting hurt because someone wants to like act like a, a fucking asshole. To, to be to be completely frank, I'll be pissed because that's his because I'm his friend. I know him. These artists have friends, people, family that they're close to. That you guys are that um, either a putting in danger with um, you're putting yourselves in danger because like the Travis Scott incident, which I was at the Saba concert last year on 420. Not oddly uh, oddly enough, I didn't, I didn't expect him to be to, uh, be in Atlanta on 420, but pe- two people passed out. And he had to stop the con- like almost learning from the mistakes of like the astral world thing. He had to like be like, "Ayo, ayo, everyone, stop, stop, stop." And once it was uh, alerted to him, because and it was like, "Ayo, some people like help them up, help them up, get security." Had to get the had to get them out of there and make sure they were okay. And we didn't start again until he made sure they were okay. And then then people still proceeded to throw stuff at him. And I was like, "Yo, you had the artists looking out for y- y'all safety more than like." You're looking out for theirs. Where's what? What are we doing here? And this, Stephen did a great job just throughout the piece, just making sure. Like, it, it was once at the artist because Bruce Springsteen was like, "Yo, he's like supply and demand. Y'all are gonna buy these tickets anyway." But at the same mm-hmm. time, though, us understanding the com- the demand with the, I, we, we are the demand. We're, we're the ones that are putting out the demand. Yeah, I wanna I wanna go to that Springsteen quote and then actually the section that just follows because that's a really good point. Um, but first, I wanna also say that you hit the nail on the head um, <coughs> with something that you said about like the fans being behind screens uh, with something that I've kind of thought when it comes to this issue with like overpriced concert tickets, um, festivals just kind of sucking in general this year, and it's that like somehow in this two years where we didn't have live music. 
things have shifted to where live music wants to sell more to like the influencer experience than they do to the music lover experience, right? And that also contributes to the rising cost hmm. of festival and concert tickets. You know, if I'm making money by getting my influencer content at the festival, if I'm profiting off of that, I'll pay $400 for a ticket. That's a business expense. You're not paying $400 a ticket if you're a fan who just wants the music experience, right? But if that's an investment and I can go there and create content, and you know, the two years that everyone spent online definitely drove the number of people who see the possibilities in creating content. Um, We actually just did a podcast episode not that long ago about the creator economy and sort of the fallacy of the creator economy. So, you know, that's an aspect of it too. People, it's shifted more from, uh, away from a music lover experience to a content creator kind of experience. And that definitely plays into it. But the the part the part about Springsteen, I wanted to quote, because it was like a really good quote from Springsteen. And then the journalist here um, follows it up with this, this um, description that shows how, you know, maybe describing the industry as broken is not the best way to describe it. And maybe the best way to describe it is functioning as intended. Um, so this quote from Springsteen is, we have those tickets that are going to go to that higher price somewhere anyway. The ticket broker or someone is going to be taking that money. I'm going, hey, why shouldn't that money go to the guys that are going to be up there sweating three hours a night for it? And what he's talking about here is basically Ticketmaster using a thing similar to Uber um, when it comes to surge pricing, that concert tickets adjust price based on an algorithm um, that can considers how in demand they are. And you read the Springsteen quote and you're like, okay, he's got a point, I guess. You know, if, if scalpers are going to buy the tickets at the floor price and then make it so that they're only available at that resale price anyway, then like, okay, I guess I'd rather have that money go to the artist than to the scalper. Um, And if people are willing to pay that for the tickets anyway, you know, shouldn't that money go to the artist? But then the journalist follows it with this next paragraph here. He's not wrong. Ticketmaster might be evil, but their evil is inadvertently completed by our eagerness to see our favorite artist on stage. One simply is not possible without the other. That's why when people say that the concert industry is broken, they're really ignoring the inherent unfairness of capitalism. The unfairness is a sign that the system is working exactly as designed. The bug is the feature. In this case, we're talking about supply and demand. When demand far outstrips supply, you either increase the supply. Bruce plays 25 shows at Madison Square Garden so that everybody who wants to see him can get in at a fair price. Or you decrease demand by pricing out all but the richest and or most devoted fans. Even if he wanted to attempt the former, it probably wouldn't be a good idea at his age. That leaves the less savory option. So it really hones in on how the issue is extremely systemic and that like as long as the system exists that wants to use that system, you know, these other solutions, these other fixes, these other things that basically just amount to us saying like, Artists should charge less for tickets, even though people are willing to pay higher prices for tickets. And I guess I'm directing that at artists, but it's, you know, if the entity, whatever it is, Ticketmaster or the venue itself, you know, if, if we're telling them the solution is like charge less money for tickets, even though, you know, people will pay higher price for tickets, you're, you're going to get nowhere. You're asking them to to, you know, that's not like you said, that's not a bug. That is a feature. That's intentional. It, it does that on purpose. There's no way I would have seen Kendrick in Long Island if the tickets weren't $70, which <laughs> felt for like you know, <laughs> reasonable for, uh, you know, a 
something I would not hate myself for buying for an artist that I, you know, is at a certain level. But yeah, I think it's, it's all, it's all super cyclical and there's not one real answer, which kind of goes back to why I think this, this piece felt so directed at me because it was like talking about all of this stuff. This, this weird catch 22 that's associated with capitalism, but not being entirely overcome by that and still making it about, you know, people having conversations about how they feel about things and sort of the balance of those two things and how they're interconnected, um, I think is really what makes this piece stand out amongst the many about similar things. Yeah. And my, my, honestly, my last statement is like just these three things. Fuck capitalism. Act like y'all got some goddamn home training. And Ticketmasters can still go to hell. And that's really like just, yeah, fuck everything else. Well, my my two things I'll say is shouts to reading, read, and let's all have more group huddles. <laughs> damn, damn right. <laughs> I like that, that, that way you compare this to a group huddle. That's something I'm maybe going to think about in future pitches, too. I'm like, what do we need to have a group huddle on? Like, what do we just yeah. need to what are <laughs> Yeah, we yeah, I, I was... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's and a, not on Twitter Spaces, please. That's like a, a thing of this episode too, right? Is like, how can we tastefully put our own uh, very relatable experiences into pieces to uplift them, and then how can we write more pieces in? And these are kind of, I guess, like you know, New Year's resolutions, I guess, and make more pieces that feel more like group huddles. That can be a good resolution for for where journalism and music journalism can go in the new year, maybe yeah hey man yeah new year new year first pod new year new pieces new, new year new, new pitches no near you no new year new me new year new us Ooh. <laughs> oh bars <laughs> this is terrible bars. Terrible. Myself. charlie's shaking his head in the video uh giving me a 50 50 on that one but we'll we'll just leave it where it is um okay so yeah just to recap as I am the host, all three of the pieces that we talked about today, the first one was the one that I brought entitled Kendrick Lamar's new chapter, Raw, Intimate and Unconstrained, written by the Pulitzer winner Mitchell S. Jackson for New York Times Magazine. The second one brought by Tyler. It's a new year. Let's leave alpha male rap fandom behind, written by Andre G for Rolling Stone. And last but certainly not least, Brandon brought 2022 as a weird and often bad year to be a concert audience member. Written by Stephen Hyden for Uproxx. I want to thank everybody for listening. First and foremost, uh, hope everyone had a good new year. And I want to encourage um, all, you know, indie freelance writers who are writing for smaller publications who want more people to read their work. Feel free to please send us that work so we can look over and consider it for the podcast. Obviously, we are uh, highlighting work at three sort of major publications here, but we also want to highlight the work of great writers at smaller ones. So please let us know about it so we can check it out. Um, and yeah, that's about all I got. Happy New Year. Thanks for listening. Yeah, Happy New Year. Uh, after this, we should be back on our reg regular programming as well. So look out for new episodes. Maybe. Like, subscribe, follow. Um, give us that five-star review. Let us know what you think. What, what concerts have you been to? Hit us on Twitter. Amen. This 
episode of In Search of Source featured Mika Hellerback, Brandon Hill, and Tyler Jones of the Central Source Creative Collective. The episode is edited by me, Charlie Taylor of the Fifth and Podcast Network. Music for this show is fucked up by Barsity. Plays your music for the bit to use. This has been In Search of Source and Fifth Element Podcast Network production. Thanks for Barsity, Short Music, Central Source, Fifth Element, and content coming the episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening. You'll see you next time as we continue our search for Source.